If you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 109 as we continue our study through the Word. Now, this 109th Psalm that we have before us is a Psalm of David. And David here is pleading for judgment now against those that are accusing him. And and verse 1, it begins, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. And so here we see that David begins by seeking God's uh, help when he is being maligned. His reputation is being tarnished. People are speaking behind his back and they are deceitful words and they are lying words. It is hurtful when people speak ill about you, when you find out from others that, uh, that unkind words are being said about you. It's one thing if the unkind words are true. It's another thing when the unkind words are not true at all, but are maliciously maligning the integrity and the reputation. And, and so here is David. You can imagine the, the king, any person in a position of authority or, or leadership has many critics. Amen? And so David here as king now has, has many people that are coming against him, but they're not honest. It's not true, the accusations. And, and so we see David turning to the Lord. And he says in verse 3, they have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. And in return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to what? To prayer. I love that. David here is bringing the burdens of his heart to God. I want to encourage all of us to continue to bring the burdens of our life to God. Anybody got any burdens, any burdens in life uh, here today? It seems like we've got more burdens uh, lately than we even know what to do with. The Bible tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares uh, for you. We can wring our hands in anxiety. We can fuss. We can fret. We can worry or we can pray. We can bring our petition, bring our burdens, bring our sorrows, bring our hardships to God. And so that's exactly what David is doing. I give myself to prayer. What a great statement to be able to say. In verse 5, thus they, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Here we see that David now is asking God, do not keep silent, O God of my praise. He, he is asking now for God to move on his behalf. In verse 6, Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Here we see that David is saying to God, God, go get him. 
<laughs> and, and we see that there is really this prayer of judgment against his enemies. Now, remember that David lived under Old Covenant. Underneath New Covenant, uh, we are called to love our enemies uh, and to pray for our enemies. Now, David would say, I was praying for my enemies, you know. God, break their teeth, you know, smite them, cut them off, inflict them with plagues, you know. I mean, David, David is praying, you know. But what is he doing? He's asking God to be the judge, isn't he? He's saying, examine their, their cause and my cause, and, and God, rule judiciously, stand in the gap for me. And, and here we see that in the new covenant where we're called uh, to love our enemies, we want to once again take and put the situation into God's hand, bring it to prayer. We don't want the destruction of our enemies. Rather, we would have our enemies get saved, amen? We would have our enemies now come to the light and walk in truth and have a, 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 a Saul to Paul conversion on the Damascus road. And so rather than seeking their destruction, we want God to turn their heart and we want righteousness to rise. But here we see the, the heartfelt emotion of bringing his desire for deliverance and to the Lord. We see that recorded uh, here in verse 9. Let his children be fatherless and let his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Here we see that David is really spelling it out exactly now, you know, the judgment that, that he would like to see on his enemies. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their names be blotted out in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, this is the, you know, the prayer of his heart uh, here. This is his emotions, you know, uh, spilling out. And uh, he's not done. Verse 14. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Why? Verse 16, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. And so... Here we see that, that there was a, now this merciless vindictiveness that is taking place here beyond what happened with David. The, his enemies see, here are, uh, are perpetrating on the helpless and, and there is no mercy being shown here that he might even slay the broken in heart. Now, it's interesting that the Bible tells us in Psalm 34 that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. If your heart is broken, if you are really going through it, I want you to know that the Lord is, is near to you, that he comes and he helps the brokenhearted. He is tender 
and he is full of mercy and kindness. And, and so here we see as David is, is praying for intervention here, he is describing now the wicked and what the wicked are doing. It says in verse 17, as he loved cursing, so let it come to him. And as he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. And as he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him. And for a bell with which he girds himself continually, let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. And, and so David's prayer is a just prayer. He is suffering injustice, and so he is wanting justice. Justice is something that as believers we should all desire. We want justice in our courts. We want justice in our lands. We want justice uh, to reign in our lives. And, and here we see that David has a just cause that he is pleading before God. He says in verse 21, but you... O oh God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me. Notice that David doesn't say that he's good. Notice that he is not asking for mercy because he deserves it. But he is crying out to the goodness of God. In verse 22, he says, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded uh, within me. And so David had said that they were persecuting the poor and needy and that they might even slay the broken in heart. David might have been the broken in heart back in verse 16 that he was even crying out to. David's heart is broken. And he says, and I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. And my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Oh, save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed but let your servant rejoice. And let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. And so David's plea is straightforward and simple. Help me, O Lord my God. And he says in verse 30, I will greatly Praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. And so David's heart here is to be rescued and saved that he might what? That he might praise God, that he might give God the honor and the glory that is due to him. And so here we see that that is the chief aim of mankind. Your chief aim in life is not to be wealthy, it's not to be comfortable, it's not to live in a white picket fence or live happily ever after. 
Your purpose here upon this earth is to reflect to, to the world around you the glory of God, to manifest to the world, to make known to the world in action, in deed, in attitude, in servanthood, the, the glory of the God that you serve. And in all ways, seeking to draw attention to the goodness uh, of uh, God. And that is the purpose. From now till the last breath that you take, that is your purpose. Sometimes we glorify God through the suffering and the road of humiliation that we go. Sometimes it is through exaltation and blessings that God pours uh, out upon us. Sometimes it is in, in sickness, and other times it is through conflict. God, God is seeking as we navigate and through in our life the twists and the turns that all of it seeks to be an opportunity for us to seek him and to glorify him. And so the more that we know him and the more that we are known by him, the more that we reveal ourselves uh, to him and the more that he reveals himself to us as we draw closer in intimacy and in communion with him, we are more able to bring glory to him. It's hard to bring glory to someone that you don't know. The more that you know them, the more readily you are apt and the easier it is to give glory to the God that you do know. And so through the circumstances in your life, know this, that God is seeking to draw near to you. And, and he says that if you will draw near to me, that I will what? I will draw near to you. If you seek me, you will find me. Not you might find me or you have a good possibility of finding me. He, he, he declares all you have to do is just make an attempt. And if you make an attempt, uh, you are going to be successful in that attempt. And so here we see that David's desire is to be able to stand in the midst of the assembly and to just add on to his testimony of what God is doing. He's surrounded by enemies. He's brokenhearted. He's going through a difficult time. He is being maligned. He is being falsely accused. And he's saying, God, defend me. And, and make it so obvious to everybody that you're the one that has defended me and I will praise you in public. I will lift up my voice uh, and bring you honor and glory. Psalm 110. This is a, a, an amazing psalm uh, here. And we see that this brings up the, uh, the priest and king known as Melchizedek. Uh, and Melchizedek uh, is found back in the uh, book of Genesis uh, here. And, and we see that he was, you'll remember the story of Melchizedek as we set the backdrop into this psalm. You remember that Abraham is called out of Ur and, and Remember how he is told not to bring him, but he, but he brings Lot, who was his nephew with him. And, and Lot follows him around. And you remember that Lot ends up now getting, in, as God had blessed them, their herdsmen started to have difficulties with one another and over the wells and the pasture land. And so you remember that Abraham tells Lot, Lot, 
here's the valley, here's the hill country. You pick whichever one you want. You go, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction so that we can keep peace between our, our herdsmen and our flocks. And, and you remember that Lot looks at the hill country, and that's difficult, and he sees the, the plain, and he sees that this is where the pastures would be easy for the flocks. And, and so he picks the plains, and Abraham says, fine, I'll take my flocks up into the hill country. Well, those plains are, are Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot sets up outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the next thing you know, he's moved in closer. The next thing you know, he's uh, uh, an elder. He's sitting in the gates of, uh, of uh, Sodom. Well, there were the kings that came down and they had joined together and they made a raid through the entire area. There were five kings that, that came down. There were the kings then of the plains that they banded together in a conflict against these five kings that came down. King of Sodom, King of Gomorrah, and the other kings that had joined in together. And, and the battle began, and, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they started to get routed, and so they fled. They ran to the hill country, and, and in came these other kings, and they plundered Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and they took Lot and his family, and they took them as as slaves, and they headed off back uh, up to the territory where they had come from. And, and you remember that Abraham, when a messenger comes and tells him that they've taken Lot and his family, that, that Abraham goes and raises up his 300 servants, a little over 300 uh, servants, and, and then there were some uh, additional Malachites that, were the, that came with him, and he went on a raid, and he chased after these five kings. They go all the way to, to Dan. That's uh, about 100 miles, and, and they hadn't caught him yet, and they went another 75 miles or so before he finally catches these kings. And on a night raid, he goes in and wipes them out, and he's able to, to capture Lot and his family and the possessions and all that they had taken from from Sodom and Gomorrah and from the plains, and he brings it all back. Now, as he is coming back victorious, here comes the, the king of Sodom. Now, you remember that Sodom was known for being a wicked city. So there's a wicked king that's over this wicked city. And, and this wicked king uh, comes out, and, and this wicked king wants to make a deal uh, with uh, uh, Abraham. But Abraham has sworn that he is not going to touch one bit of all that he had captured back, but that he would give it. He never wanted to let the king of Sodom say that I was the one that made you wealthy and that you owe me because of, of your wealth now. And so he wants nothing from the world. Sodom is representative of the world. But also we see that the king of Salem meets him. There's a contrast between these two kings, the king of Salem, the king of peace, and the king of Sodom, who is the representative of this world. And instead, you remember what happens is, is that uh, he comes out and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham now, now Abraham, this is the only person that ever takes spiritual authority over Abraham. Remember that God is 
forming a nation out of uh, Abraham and has mm, called him. But here comes this king who is also a priest and he serves them the communion elements. He serves them wine and bread and he blesses Abraham. Now you remember that the greater blesses the lesser. And so Abraham allows Melchizedek uh, to bless him. Uh, and then what Abraham does is he takes a tithe. He takes uh, 10% and he gives it now over to Melchizedek. And, and here we see that Melchizedek is a combination of a king and a priest. Now, you remember that uh, underneath the, the, the law, when the law comes later through Moses, that the kingly line is going to come through Judah, but the priestly line is going to come through Aaron, through the Levites. Uh, and so it would be impossible for anybody to be a king and a priest uh, in Judaism uh, underneath the law of Moses if it was a king and a priest underneath the line of the Levites uh, and Judah. But what we're going to see here that Jesus Christ, who is priest, prophet, and king, uh, he comes from the tribe of Judah. He is from the root of David. But David is in a different line than the Levites. But we see that Jesus Christ is a priest, not after the order of the Levites, but he is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek and Abraham are much earlier than Moses. Abraham has the patriarchs and then the patriarchs go into Egypt and then they grow and then they're brought out by Moses and they go to Sinai and there comes the law and here comes the priesthood. But in all of this, we see the nation of Israel now had a priest over it because Abraham is representative of the nation of Israel. We see that the nation of Israel had a priest and had a king in Melchizedek. This is a typology now of Jesus Christ who is both our high priest and he is also our king. So here we have in this psalm now, we uh, have this conversation between the Father and the Son, between Yahweh and, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord said to my Lord, so David's listening, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Jesus, he says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, sit at my right hand. We see that the Messiah is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the place of authority. It says what? Until the consummation of the ages. Until I make your enemies your footstools. Your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion to rule in the midst uh, of your enemies. And at the appointed time, we see that, uh, that the Lord now is going to return and he is going to subjugate his uh, enemies. He says in verse three, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew uh, of uh, your youth. And, uh, and so here again, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, he doesn't live to a, 
to a, a ripe old age. He is cut off at 33 years old here at the beginning. Now, remember that you couldn't even function as a priest until you were 30 years old. And so Jesus begins his public ministry at the, at the earliest acceptable age and then three years and, and he is cut off. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here we see that Jesus is our high priest. We see in the book of Hebrews, it talks about we have a a high priest in Christ Jesus. And in verse five, it says, the Lord is at your right hand and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath and he shall judge among the nations and he shall fill the place with dead bodies and he shall execute the heads of many countries. You will remember that when Messiah, priest, king returns, uh, that he is going to judge the nations and there is going to be the sheep and the goats and the nations are going to be judged as Jesus then establishes his millennial reign. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, and therefore he shall lift up the head. And so he is refreshing himself with a a drink. This figuratively pictures uh, the renewal and the lifting up of the head means that he is going to be uh, exalted. And so uh, here we see that in the New Testament, Christ is going to return accompanied by the saints and he is going to return to judge the world and to establish his kingdom here upon earth. And so a a, a glorious messianic psalm here uh, that we have Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 111, we see that this is a a psalm that's geared around praise. And uh, the first psalm we looked at was a psalm of intercession. It was a psalm of pleading. It was a psalm of racing to the Lord when you are in dire straits and, and seeking the Lord as your defender and as your protector. But here we see now the the praise that erupts from the work that God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. I love verse one, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with what part of my heart? My whole heart, I love that. Praising God with your whole heart. Not a praise the Lord, (laughs) but an entire, what is wholehearted, what does wholehearted praise look like? Have you ever come in in the sanctuary and just kind of gone through the motions of praise? Ever just kind of gone through the worship set and your lips kind of lip-synced along, but but your heart wasn't completely there. Maybe you were distracted. Maybe you're thinking about other things. You come in and you're, you're burdened. And, and think about that and how much that contrasts to when you are wholeheartedly worshiping. When you are just caught straight into the the presence of God and you are wholeheartedly worshiping the Lord. Here we see that the psalmist declares that that he is committing himself to wholehearted worship. I wonder what God thinks of half-hearted worship. I wonder what that's like to receive half-hearted worship. People that are just going through the routine, just kind of going through the motion. 
compared to when you're authentically connected to God and, and you are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. The Bible says that, uh, that the Father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and, and in truth. Who's, who's really here to connect with me? Who's really here to, to come into my presence? And David says, I am. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose ye this day who you're, who you're going to serve. But I'll tell you this, I don't care if none go with me, still I'm going to follow. And I am going to press into the presence of the Lord. And, and God, you're not going to get half-hearted, lukewarm, distracted worship from me. I'm going to be ready to worship. I'm going to be ready to come into your presence and I am going to join with others whose hearts are knitted together with you and, and we will lift our voices uh, up to you. And so we see the heart of, of a worshiper is determined here. Notice what he says. He says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart as long as they sing songs that I like. Do you know one of the great problems that we have in the church today is, is that worship has become, listen to this, and I'm sad to even say it, it's become a consumer product. A consumer product. We, we have a consumer mentality. We live in a consumer culture. And, and so we have you know, the, the, this attitude of, well, you know, I'll give, the, I'll give the worship seven out of 10. I kind of like the beat, but I wish we had different words to go along, you know, with, with that one there. As if the worship was for us. You see, the, the worship has nothing to do with us. The, the worship is all for him. And so it is an attitude of the heart. David has determined before he comes into the sanctuary that he's going to worship. Not we'll see what happens today and we'll see if this, if this is, is what I want in order to worship. And, and so here we see a, a commitment of the heart to worship, to worship. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. There is a time for private worship, and I, I, I love to worship privately, but then there's also corporate worship. And, and corporate worship is, is when we are a collective worshiping. And, and so here we see that there is something that happens when we gather together. God commands us to gather together, right? God tells us, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, and that when two or more are gathered in my name, that, that there I am in the midst. God honors and God blesses in a special way when the body of Christ gathers together. And, and so here we see that, that David is declaring that he is going to, to praise with his whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. He says in verse two, the works of the Lord are what? They're great. And I love this, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And I thought, man, as we are kicking off our Bible studies, is, this, is there a better verse in the entire Bible? It says that the word of God, listen to this, is studied by all 
who have pleasure in them. Pleasure in the Word of God. I will tell you that, uh, that studying the Word of God is the most amazing use of your time. I cannot think of a better use of, uh, of our time than, than reading and studying the very words that God has spoken to us. I think of the newspapers, the emails, the text messages. I think of all of the things that I, that I read. And then I put those over here. Those are all generated by man. And then here are the words that God has spoken and given to us. And, and to be able to set aside time to read God's word, to study God's word, to know what God has to say to us. And, and so it says that the word of God is studied by all those who have pleasure in them. His work, God's work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures how long? Forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. And so here we see that the psalmist is declaring that God's wonderful works, he's done them what to be remembered. He has set a testimony before us that we can see how God and man have interacted from the very beginning with us. And so these wondrous works that he has done, he did them very publicly. <laughs> he didn't do them privately. He did them as publicly as you can possibly do them. He took the most powerful nation in the world and he drops them onto their knees and wipes out their army publicly by walking the nation through the Red Sea and then having it crash on top of the Egyptian army and the chariots. And he does this now in front of all of the people, in front of Pharaoh and in front of the nation of Egypt. The nation of Egypt's army went after the Israelites. Did you ever think of this? After the Israelites have departed, and now Pharaoh sends his entire army to go get them and bring them back, and what happens? His army never comes back. All the families of all of those soldiers never returned again. And what happened? In as public a way as you possibly could, God has declared his power and his might and the wondrous deeds that, that he has done. What? To be remembered. That you might know who God is and that you have been invited into an intimate relationship with this awesome, wonderful, powerful, merciful, gracious God. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. It means that he faithfully keeps his promises. What you have in the word of God is a book of promises. God's made a bunch of promises. And, and I think of all of the people that have never even read the promises that God has made to them. It's a book filled with promises and people never even stopped to, to read the promises that God has made to them. And when God makes a promise, God keeps <laughs> that promise. I'd rather have a promise from God than anybody else, amen? 
That, that's the most trustworthy of all the promises that, uh, that there are. Those are the promises that, uh, that I want. And in giving them the heritage of the nations, it says, in the conquest, he gave the people the land that he had promised. He walked Abraham through the land. Abraham's all by himself. And God said, you see all of this? This is all yours. This is all your inheritance. Your descendants, this is their land, and I'm giving it to you. And, and he walked through the whole land, and, and God told Abraham, that's going to be your land. And then what does he do? He brings the nation out of Egypt, and he brings them into the land, and he gives them the land. He gave the people the land that he promised. Why? Because he's faithful in his promises. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. And he has sent redemption to his people and he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And so God's works are faithful and his work, excuse me, is absolutely dependable. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments and his praise endures forever. The psalmist concludes this psalm of praise with the recognition that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of uh, wisdom. And we see Proverbs in chapter 1-7 declares the same thing. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've heard me tell oftentimes I have shared that this was one of the verses that troubled me when I was a, a new believer. I didn't understand this because in the Bible it tells me that I was reading in the New Testament where it said that perfect love casts out all fear. And so I'm like, God is love and love casts out fear and, and, and that fear is from the enemy. And then I come across the verse and it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I was so confused about that. If God doesn't want us to be afraid, then why is being afraid of him the first step in wisdom? And then this is what really troubled me. If the fear of the Lord is the first step of wisdom, right? It's the first step and I can't understand that. <laughs> I have zero wisdom whatsoever in my life. I'm like, okay, if I can't even get this, you know, if I can't get the alphabet down, I'm not going to be able to read, you know. And so that really troubled me. And, uh, and then the Lord showed me that it's not fear like being afraid, it's concern. That, that the concern of the Lord, in other words, be concerned with what the Lord thinks about something instead of what everybody else thinks about it. And it was like, be concerned with what the Lord thinks. And the minute that you start to ask yourself, what's the Lord's position on this? What does God have to say about that? That's the beginning of wisdom. I remember that Billy Graham, I saw him in an interview one time and with an old, old talk show host. And, and it was a daytime talk show and they had him on there. And they, and they said, and they asked Billy Graham, they said, Billy Graham, what are you, what do you think about abortion? And, and I will never forget his answer. He said, you know, it doesn't matter what I think about abortion or anything else. He says, let's see what God has to say about it. And he opened up his Bible and he started to go through and started to quote now the verses. You see, it doesn't matter what I think. What does the Lord think? 
in every single issue that you've got. Today, the first thing to ask yourself is, what does the Lord say? Today, our culture says that we haven't been born male and female, that that's binary and that we now are non-binary in our gender, that it's a moving scale and it depends on how you feel and all of that. And what do you believe? And we have all different issues today that our culture is setting forth and saying that this is acceptable, that this is good, that this is right, that this is normal, that this is healthy. And then the question is, what do you think? And as a Christian, it's so easy for me. I go, let me find out what the Lord thinks. (laughs) And then I'll tell you what I think. Because whatever the Lord says, he created this. And he's the one that established the moral law and the moral code. And, And he is the one that rules in righteousness over all of it. We're moving into, and science is pushing us into complex issues and, and places that we've never ever been before in our entire life. I was always amazed at the insight and the foresight that, that Thomas Edison had when he received his Nobel Peace and Prize. And, and at his reception address, he said that One of his greatest fears, he says, is is that I foresee that at the pace that science is moving today, he says, that science is going to outstrip the pace of morality. And it's going to push us to places that we're not going to be able to keep up with morally with the advent of things. We have things like cloning and gene splicing now and affecting the, the DNA and going in and doing all sorts of things that, that is it right? Is it wrong? Should we be doing this? And, and all of these things. We can't even decide when life begins. We, we are struggling with the scientific definition of, uh, of those types of things that are happening. And we're caught up into all of these, these difficult, complex uh, issues. And I will tell you that when I became a believer, I was so thankful that I didn't have to figure all of these things out any longer. The God who created all of us knew all of this was coming and has already set forth. This is the answer book (laughs) right here to every single question, to every single problem that you've got. Here's the answers right here. In school growing up, you had tests and then sometimes somebody would get, I don't know how they would, but they would get the answer book. And they would get in trouble for getting that answer book and then giving other people the answer book. Guess what? God gave us the answer book. And you know what? You're not in trouble for having the answer book. You're just invited to come and to read the answers. The answers are are right there. You don't have to wonder. God laid it all out for you. You don't have to wonder. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, it's the first step to navigating with wisdom in your life. As an ambassador, an ambassador's personal opinion doesn't matter. When a United States ambassador goes to a foreign country, that ambassador is standing on behalf of and is representing the interests and the opinions of our nation. And so, when they speak, they speak 
as uh, an ambassador. Their personal opinion is not important, and it's not even to be on the table. They are functioning as a representative of the United States of America. As a Christian, guess what? You're an ambassador. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. When someone asks you what you think, as an ambassador, your, your personal opinion, that it's insignificant, it's unimportant. To, as an ambassador, you are being asked to give the answer that represents uh, your position of being an ambassador. And so how important it is for us as ambassadors to know the position of our God on these things and to know this. God is never wrong when he takes a position. Amen? He is never, you are never wrong. When you are supporting God's opinion on something, you are walking in absolute truth, regardless of what our culture says or if everybody comes against you. When God is on your side, you are the majority, regardless of how many people come, uh, come against you. And, and so to study the word of God as an ambassador, you have to know the policies. You have to know the positions when you're gonna go and represent. That's your due diligence. The Bible tells us, study to show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed. When, when a question is asked, you go, I don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what our position is on that. I have to get back to you. Well, what about, the, I don't know what our position is on that. I, I have to get back to you. Well, how about, the, I'm sorry, I don't. I don't have knowledge of that. It'd be, what kind of an ambassador they send us? <laughs> Study. Show yourself approved. Today we're living in a, in a world where opinions have become everything. When the reality is there's only one opinion that's important. God's opinion. It's the only thing that matters. And for us to know that opinion and then stand on that opinion and then represent that opinion. That's what God has called us to do and to do it in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping give us clarity and understanding of who we are, what we're about, the purpose that we have in our life. And now, God, would you empower us and equip us to be good ambassadors. Lord, May we reflect you well. May we represent your kingdom well. May the fragrance of Christ be upon us. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.